The most important thing really when it comes for religions is the fact that there is no compulsion in religion. That's actually a verse in the Quran, that there is no compulsion in religion. God gave us the ability to find him, to look around you in the universe, to find the truth. And then it's your choice. It's your own decision. And you can reach him in different ways. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking In Good Faith today with Dr. Talat Al-Shukarat. He graduated from the University of Jordan School of Medicine in Amman, Jordan. He's a critical care medical specialist in pulmonary disease, internal medicine, sleep medicine. Dr. Al-Shukarat, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for inviting me over. But we're actually not here to talk about medicine. (laughs) Maybe medicine for the soul. You are a leader in the local congregation, a Muslim congregation here in town. You obviously went to medical school. You weren't studying to become an imam. How did you become a leader once you got here yeah. to the U.S.? I think it's uh, it's kind of interesting how this kind of evolved. I did not really go any through any official training to become an imam. Imam really is, is a term that refers to whomever is leading the prayer. And you may get often, you know, to ask to give talks or to lead the sermon and so on. So when I came to Utah, I started going to the prayer place, which was in Orem, the small community we have. I was asked to lead the prayer sometimes because I I recite the Quran very well and just really volunteered. And eventually it's more of a volunteer job, really. Mm. Uh, No one is willing to do this. So I actually do that. In bigger communities, an imam is actually a job. You know, you'll be the one who's taking care of the mosque. You know, Mm. you often get paid by the government to be to live next to the mosque and your family probably will be living with you and so on but i can't really call myself an imam who's actually had the training to kind of do what i'm doing right now but i self-educated i'm self-educated when it comes for a lot of the things and i read a lot about uh, the faith i'm interested in theology as well i am very spiritual and i think i felt that this was a divine blessing for me to kind of be given that opportunity to actually play that role and have the chance to actually preach. Before you preach to people, you'll have to change yourself first. And so when I do this, I feel that I'm actually the very first person who will change or who should change will be myself first. Uh So I think it's a chance for me and for my family too. That's a blessing for you as well as the local people who want to come and pray and worship. Tell me about growing up in Jordan. What role did religion play in your family growing up? Growing in the Middle East, I think Islam as a religion that's pretty much global, in the Middle East is part of the culture. And there are times when you really can't tell the difference between the culture and the religion because the religion is so mixed with the culture Mm. to a great deal, to the extent that non-Muslims may think that some of the cultural aspects in the Middle East are actually religion and vice versa. And even some people believe in things that actually are not really religious, they're more of a cultural thing, and they have nothing to do with Islam itself. The relation is amazing there, I think. Add to that the fact that Islam and Arabic is extremely connected because the Quran is in Arabic. And pretty much the Quran is the most authentic textbook in Arabic. So we extract the rules of the grammar and all of that from the Quran. Hmm. And so when you speak Arabic, that becomes makes it much easier. But growing up, I think a lot of it was the culture. Mosques are everywhere. And it's just like the LDS culture here. Pretty much you life is the church. You go to church, you see people. It's the Sundays, same thing there, the Fridays and so on. I actually saw the pure Islam more 
when I actually left Jordan, more than I did when I was actually in Jordan. Because it became separated from the culture. It became separated from the culture. And when I go back and visit family and friends, I tell them that I've actually felt more blessed about religion and Islam. Since I left Jordan, I've learned much more about Islam than I actually did when I was in Jordan. Because the culture was separated from that. And I get to see it from a distance and talk to people from other religions and then understand more about theology and read more. As I started to kind of read more to be able to teach others, I had to teach myself first. So beyond the things you do every day, to kind of dig deep into the tradition and the faith was a blessing for me. I've learned much more about Islam since I came to the States than I actually did when I was in Jordan. Not about the knowledge about the events and, you know, the basics, but the spiritual depth of the religion wasn't there for me until I actually left Jordan. And it is, it's really weird and fascinating. And, and when I, I talk to my wife about that and we both feel the same way, mm. it was a big blessing for us. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. Growing up, did your family observe the prayers and, yes. and the fasting yes. and all of that? Yes, so, you know, pretty much I came from, I won't say that my family is extremely religious, but like any other average family, as you would see here, in, let's say in an LDS community, you know, people go to the church like on a regular basis. Same thing, pray five times a day, fast Ramadan, go to the Hajj. You know, pretty much my mom, my, my sisters, they cover their hair. You know, they wear hijab. That doesn't mean that all my relatives do, but everybody's like really, I mean, everybody's really committed Muslims. You may know this, but I would say 95% of Jordanian population, for example, is Muslims. There's probably less than 5% Christians in Jordan. So I, I did have friends who are Christian, but Pretty much everybody was doing that as a culture. Now, that doesn't mean everybody was practicing, but it is across the board. You'll see everybody's going to the mosque for Fridays and the fasting and, and all of that. The recent research I saw was that there were about 1.2 billion Muslims in the world, 7 million in the U.S., and that the countries with the largest Islamic populations are Indonesia and India. So yeah. it has definitely spread and grown all around the world. Yeah, 1.2. I thought 1.6 billion, but oh, I think... maybe. Yeah, it could, this I might think, be old information. <laughs> it could be. I mean, I think it always comes up because uh, I think 1.6 is probably the more accurate number. But I think, I think what that signifies is the fact that a lot of people don't realize that Islam is not only the Middle East and... Um, the largest Muslim countries are not actually Arabic, you know, Arabic-speaking countries. Um, I think that kind of um, goes back to the fact that when Islam started, you know, or, you know, um, like for 1,500 years ago, uh, the spread of Islam was a lot of it by, you know, people, by actually, you know, merchants kind of traveling and um a lot of these communities, you know, uh, you know, embraced Islam because of that. And the spread was further than where the Muslims have actually, or the governments actually got there, or like, let's say, the Khalifats, you know, got, you know, out there. Um, but I think Islam is, I think part of it too is that there, there's a lot of cultures that right now, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. I don't think this is happening because the Muslims are actually working on, you know, sending missionaries or anything like that. I think that's kind of a, an important thing. That's not happening anymore. I think a lot of it started like 14, 1500 years ago. And there is an increase in the number because of, you know, how many people are born, you know, in oh, Muslim uh -huh. families. So that's something that you will see that Muslim, <laughs> Muslim families, you know, it's part of the culture to actually have more kids if you can. Uh, not as many as the Mormon Mormon families, but you know you'll see this. I come from a family of seven sisters and a brother. So, but you'll see a lot of people interested in Islam to kind of know what this religion about just because of the media 
talking in a negative way about Islam. Mm. And, and we've seen this in the mosque where people want to see, okay, how bad this thing is. And as they kind of get into it, some people feel that this is the faith for them. And that's actually is a significant number as well that actually helped Islam in, in a way that actually was not really planned to. There's been a great interest in Quran since 9-11 because people did not realize, I, I want to know about this religion that actually tells people to go and kill others and demolish buildings and all of that. As you dig into it and you realize that you find that this is totally different, that actually yeah. led to people sometimes converting to Islam. I think it's very interesting that we get some idea about something, for instance, Islam, or we read something and just take that as how it really is. And it so often is a distorted view, but when you actually meet people, and that's the thing that I think we need to do, make an effort to meet each other, find out these people, uh, they're trying to get their kids to their soccer game, they want to pay the rent, that we're all people. And I think that's where the good relationships are built. I fully agree. I got to hear you as part of the National Day of Prayer Observance at St. Francis Catholic Church in Orem, Utah. You did something very beautiful. Different people were sharing prayers, but the way that you share the Quran, the verses that you did, is singing, chanting. Are you prepared that you could share one of those with us today? Yeah, sure, sure. I can definitely, I will, I will be honored to share some with you. First of all, I, we don't call it really singing of the Quran. Mm -hmm. It's more of reciting the Quran. Reciting. Recitation. In Arabic, it's called tilawa. Tilawa, that means to recite it. But there is actually a melody into it too. And that melody is, there's an art into it. And I'm not really a specialized reciter because you will find there's probably hundreds of thousands of people who memorize the Quran as a whole, the whole book, wow. you know, from A to Z. I mean, they will just recite the whole thing. And some people just go and study the science of the Quran, including how to recite it the way it was recited 1,500 years ago. There's actually different ways of saying some words, and that's actually a science by itself as well. So people mm. can go to college just to do this. <laughs> um, but I'll do my best today. So I'm not a pro in this, but I, I think I can do a good job there sometimes. Thank you. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم آمن الرسول بما أنزل إليه من ربه والمؤمنون كل آمن بالله وملائكته وكتبه ورسله لا نفرق بين أحد من رسله وقالوا سمعنا وأطعنا غفرانك ربنا وإليك المصير لا يكلف الله نفسا إلا وسعها لها ما كسبت وعليها ما اكتسبت ربنا لا تؤاخذنا إن نسينا أو أخطأنا ربنا ولا تحمل علينا إسرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا ربنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به واعف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا Thank you. Thank you. Would you tell us what the meaning is? So these verses are translated as such, and I'm taking it from a translation of an English copy of the Quran by Abdul Halim, and it's um, 
a version that you can actually buy on the Amazon too. Mm. So the verses say, the messenger believes in what has been sent down to him from his Lord, as do the faithful. They all believe in God, his angels, his scriptures, and his messengers. We take no distinction between any of his messengers, they say. We hear and obey. Grant us your forgiveness, our Lord. To you we all return. God does not burden any soul with more than it can bear. Each gains whatever good it has done and suffers its bad. Lord, do not take us to task if we forget or make mistakes. Lord, do not burden us as you burdened those before us. Lord, do not burden us with more than we have strength to bear. Pardon us, forgive us, and have mercy on us. You are our protector, so help us against the disbelievers. And this would be when we go for a daily prayer or for Friday prayers. Is that Juma? Juma, yes. Is that when these would be recited? So not necessarily. So when we pray, what we call as a prayer is essentially a set. It's a set things that you you should do, and a specific amount of the Quran that you'll have to recite. The prayer that I would say in the Christian denomination, we call it a supplication. So these are supplications that we do all the time. You know, we can do at any time. And you can do it all the time too. Mm. But a prayer in Islam is a very it's it's very it's very set, meaning there's five of them, there's a set time for them, and there's a specific amount of rakas, which is how many times you're standing and then kneeling. So for each one of them there is a set number. And during these prayers, we recite in every single one, you will have to recite the very first seven verses in the Quran, which is not what I recited. But those seven verses are called Al-Fatiha, which is the opening of the book. Mm. You'll have to, to recite those. And then you recite whatever you memorize from the Quran. That could be the verses that I, that I recited, or it could be anything that you memorize. Most of the Muslims recite short surahs. The Quran is made of surahs. Some of them are really long. Some of them are really short. Just to give you an idea, what I recited were actually the very last few verses in uh, pretty much the longest surah in the Quran. And then there's many other smaller surahs that would be actually shorter than what I recited. And, and they will recite that. There is actually chapters. There's 30 chapters. And then the chapters has set different numbers of surahs based on their, on their size. And so no matter what language you speak, you'll have to pray in Arabic. So you'll have to recite those in Arabic. So the one who should lead the prayer should be the one who can recite the Quran the best or who memorizes more of the Quran. As I said, there's a lot of people out there who actually memorize the whole thing. The ones who recite the Quran in Mecca, pretty much they memorize the whole thing. And there's it's actually amazing. amazing, yeah. And as he's reciting, the first row behind him are actually all people who memorize the Quran too by heart. If he makes a mistake, they will correct him. Mm. So if you hear a mistake, even if you're not leading the prayer, you'll have to correct it. You'll have to say it exactly how it's said. So we need to read it, recite it, and say it the way it is in the Quran. That was how it was like 1,500 years ago. I was impressed that you were willing to come and be part of the National Day of Prayer. There were Christian religions, um, but there was someone from the Jewish community there. There was someone from the Jewish community, if I remember, yep. I don't know if most Americans would know that there are adherents to Islam who are part of interfaith work, who are willing to work together. And I think maybe that's the meeting place is service because Islam, there's such an emphasis on helping people in need. Yes. I think the most important thing really when it comes for religions is the fact that there is no compulsion in religion. 
And the Quran says that that's actually a verse in the Quran, that there is no compulsion in religion. God gave us the ability to find him, to look around you in the universe, to find the truth. And then it's your choice. It's really your choice. It's your own decision. And you can reach him in different ways. No one's job or ability to tell that so-and-so is not going to actually be accepted because of the faith he has or because of the because how he feels inside. And even if you're acting like a good Muslim, in my opinion, that doesn't mean necessarily you'll be accepted because only God knows what's inside your heart. <laughs> and that's the thing, is that piety is a secret between you and your Lord. If you go back to the Muslim history, there were good times, there were bad times too. The bad times were actually when Muslims were ruling as kings. But when they were ruling as Muslims, Islam accepted all of the other religions you know, within the same structure. Like, for example, in the Medina, the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians lived together in that very first Medina or Muslim city that the Prophet started mm-hmm. you know, 1,500 years ago. If you look in Spain, you know, 800 years where yes. the Muslims, Christians, and the Jews lived together. We're talking eight centuries. We're finding it difficult now to co-live for like a few, <laughs> few years. It's just like so sad and ridiculous. Now, that doesn't mean they did not have bad times. They had bad times where Muslims killed and the Christians killed and so on. But that's yes. when they were ruling because of politics. That's the time when they were ruling as kings and politics were playing a part in that. But if you look at, for example, the golden age for the Jewish, were actually when the Muslims were ruling in Spain at that time, you know, for 800 years. And so in Islam, no compulsion in religion is very true. And I think the reason we're fighting and people have this attitude is that, like, you know, I heard it from a scholar from BYU and I loved what he said that same meeting when he said the problem is not really the religion, is the problem that we actually believe, we don't believe in the freedom for religion. Mm. However, you just, you need to serve the community as any other regular member of the community. Like when the second Khalifa one time was walking in the streets of the Medina, he found like an older Jewish gentleman you know, man sitting and he was asking for help and he goes, don't you have people to spend on you? He said, no. He said, well, we used you when you were young and we did not take care of you when you're old. So he ordered, at that time it's called Baytul Mal, which is basically the treasury, to actually start paying him a subsidy every month because he was part of the community and mm. he started the very first social security. His name is Umar bin Khattab. That was the second Khalifa. And I, I don't believe that any other religion tells you to go and actually kill people or force them to embrace yeah. that religion. Because a religion is something you embrace because you believe in it. You know, you feel it in your heart. I'm wondering if I could go back to something you said that was very interesting to me. You talked about separating religion from culture and that when you left the culture, you were able to focus more and clearly see what the religious part was and that you felt a deepening, if I understood correctly, of your faith. What did you learn? What changed in you? So really the change was big for me because I started to kind of look more for answers that would be raised by questions that actually a lot of people would ask me being not Muslims and being from a different culture. And as I know more, I started to kind of have more love and more passion toward the faith than I did before. I felt that there is a role for me to actually do in life that I did not have before or a chance for me to kind of, when people ask me, I know what to answer and I need to find the answers too. Some of these questions were raised because of criticism that I would face mm-hmm. in regard to the religion. So I go back and then, so, okay, does that make sense? Then I would see, okay, well, this was not really part of Islam. This was part, it's part of the culture. Islam actually did not do that. And so as you're finding things, you know, it's pretty, pretty much, it's going to be one of two things. Either you will find that this is not the right thing for you and you will find the truth that, you know, what I believed in on my life, I grew up believing in, 
wasn't probably the right thing for me and it wasn't it wasn't really exactly what I thought it is. Or you will find that actually you did not appreciate the greatness of this religion. And that's what I felt. I felt that I did not appreciate how great the religion was until I actually start to kind of look deeper and then talk to other people about it. And then what I felt of as like something that I have every day, like you wake up in the morning and then you hear the call for the prayer everywhere in the Middle East. You go to Turkey, yeah. I'm sure you've heard this. You don't have it there in, in, in the States, you know, right? You know, I don't hear that. So missing that made me go more and I feel that I'm thirsty to kind of learn more and do more. And, and that actually changed me a lot, myself and my wife. You know, it was probably meant to be, but there's a lot of people too who had questions that needed help too. They have questions. They, they want to understand. Some of them are Muslims from other cultures. Then they, need, they needed help reading the Quran, asking about this, about that. And then feeling that you're actually playing a role and now trying to help out and volunteer. It really changed me from the inside. But meeting people from other faiths too was really important too because you will see what other religions have in common with Islam and how we're different. And you'd realize that, you know, it just doesn't really matter. We believe in God. They probably perceive him differently at times than we do or it could be that they reach him in a different way. But, you know, they love their religions and they're good people and it doesn't really matter because there's quite few people who are Muslims but they're not good people because they have not really made the religion control and affect their actions their actions they've segregated their lives they mm. believe in their heart with one thing but what they do with their hands and what they do physically is totally different from what their heart should be telling them and um, that doesn't change that i think in that situation you're worse than someone who's atheist or who doesn't have a religion because it doesn't really matter then in mm. my opinion I think it's interesting that as a doctor, you're already helping people physically and emotionally in, in a lot of ways. But I admire that you're also making time for spiritual service for those of the congregation here locally who need that. Oh, thank you. Are there particular things that maybe a verse or a surah that gives you strength at a particular time or has become a favorite that you could tell me about? Oh, there's quite few there's quite a few verses for different times that I feel. One of the verses, let's say in times of like really tough times when life brings an ordeal, one of the verses in the Quran, it says, That means the believers, when an ordeal happens to them, they will say, That means we're for God and we will be back to him and we'll go back to him. And that verse is really important because it just reminds you that no matter how bad it can be, this is not the biggest disaster that you can ever have in life. And this life, is the whole thing is not eternal. It's just like a short journey and you'll be living here in no matter, you know, it's, even if you lived for 50, 100 years, I don't know, it just doesn't, doesn't really matter. It feels that it's a short journey. We came from heaven and we're destined back for heaven. This kind of life is a trial. Some of the scholars used to say that if something bad happens to you in life, you, you should always remember if it's not something that's affecting your faith, because that's probably the biggest disaster in life, that you feel that you find, found the truth and now you're not embracing it anymore. Or that um, if that happens, that's probably the biggest disaster in life. But no matter what you, what you have in life, there's always a bigger thing of it. But when you think of God and you kind of take that strength from him, that helps me. So, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, ud'uni astajib lakum. I love this verse a lot. Ud'uni astajib lakum. That means call upon me and I will answer you. Ud'uni astajib lakum. That means he's around us. He hears us every moment, in every second. He sees us. He knows of us. 
الله سبحانه وتعالى says يعلم الجهر وما يخفى يعلم الجهر وأخفى that means he he knows what you say and he knows the أخفى that means that that's even more secret than that that means what your heart says mm. you don't need to say it he hears it it's in your heart and so ادعوني أستجب لكم that means Allah is asking us to ask me so that I actually will answer you to so that I give you so I live my life and I know that if I need something I ask Allah I will make a prayer I will wake up in the middle of the night and I will make a prayer that nobody would see it will be me asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that's important because ud'uni astajib lakum that's like part of what I feel is the, the blessings of, of the Lord on us that he actually bestowed upon us all of these blessings and he knows that we sin but he's asking us to ask for things and he will give us back to us right istaghfiruni aghfir lakum this another verse that says ask for forgiveness and I will forgive you And when you think of it, how humbling that is for me that, you know, I, I just need to ask. But that asking, that supplication, the prayer that you do, the act of asking by itself is so huge. It's the Prophet ﷺ used to call it, when I say Sallallahu that means peace be upon him in Arabic. That when we mention the Prophet Muhammad, we always say peace be upon him. He used to say that that means that when you're praying, praying is the essence of worship. Like you love the Lord, you love your God, right? You love God. When you're asking him, that's a sign of love that you need him, that you're showing him that you need him. I always tell my kids, there isn't anything that you want to ask for after you finish your prayer. Ask for something. There isn't anything you want to ask for. Just ask for it. And so in times of need, I find that these verses are really soothing and, and very important. But there's a lot of them. What I love about my religion is the fact that I'm connected with God all the time. Like the five prayers, no matter what I'm doing, in my clinic, after the clinic, I will just go close the room and I will just do my prayer. It takes two, three minutes in the middle of everyone. But I tell myself, I need to do it right. Because mm-hmm. that doesn't mean if I'm doing it, it's accepted. I'll have to, for 30 seconds, to distract. And I'm sure you probably do the same thing when you do your prayer. Distract yourself from everything around you, from whatever life is bringing. And for 30 seconds, say, okay, I am in this minute between the hands of God and I'm actually dedicating those minutes for Him. And I'm doing it feeling that I'm actually praying in between his hands as if I'm actually in front of him. And, you know, that day has been bad. There's a lot of, that's the time for me to ask that God, please help me, help yeah. my family, help me, you know, take care of my patients. I sometimes pray for my patients. Like I've had a bad day and some of the patients are not doing well. You know, may God cure them. You know, may God give cure through me, you know. Or on the other hand, something good happened to me. That's the time to pray too. That's another verse that I love. And that verse says, Ashkuruni azitkum. I'm going to try to kind of say it correctly. That means, if you thank me, I will give you more. And that's an important thing. A lot of the time we feel happy about things in life, really big things in life. But we forget to thank the one who gave them to us. We forget that God has bestowed these blessings on us. There's two meanings to that. The first thing is literally that, you know, if something really happened, I will go and I will do a prayer. And I will just do sujood like where I kneel down and I will actually do my prayer, right? But at the same time, to thank him, you should make sure that you're using it for good purpose and not to commit a sin through that blessing. And to remember that, like I got a new car and I love my car. Always be grateful so that you can thank him, so that you feel that you're actually thanking God. There's a lot of verses that help me in different aspects of life, but I've brought the sorrow and I brought the, the happiness. But I think this continuous connection with God is so important because without it, life can carry us away. One of the five pillars of Islam is the fasting for the month of Ramadan. What does that mean to you and your family, if you can sum that up briefly? Fasting is a good example of the cultural thing as well. Mm -hmm. So fasting, I think there's quite a few people who sometimes fast, but they don't really pray regularly because they need to fast. Everybody's fasting. And fasting comes in, you know, with 
special desserts that's made around that time of the year in different cultures. And when we get gatherings and we find pe- meet people from different Muslim cultures, it's amazing what they do for their Ramadan. But Ramadan, as a fasting month, it's a month in the calendar. To me, it's the best time of the year for me to renew myself. I feel that I've changed a lot during the year and I need that rehab month to change me, to kind of help me get better. When you don't eat for like, you know, or drink for 30 days in a row for, and then for only a few hours, you have the time to, to do that. And you know when you're fasting, you can't really make a sin because otherwise it's going to ruin your fasting. You'll have to keep your gaze low. You'll have to do your work right. You can't lie. You can't cheat. You can't backbite. You have to talk very little. After 30 days, if you do it properly, it really changes. And a lot of the prayer and the greatness of Ramadan for the Muslims is not really the day times. The day is when you're fasting, when you're really not eating and drinking. But the nights are extremely blessed because that's when you do your worship. A lot of it extra worships. Then you do more prayers. Wake up in the middle of the night when everyone is sleeping and you don't really sleep much. You know, you feel tired. You feel exhausted. But you're doing it for one reason. You're doing it to please your Lord. And that's why you'll find that pretty much every religion has fasting in it. You're doing this kind of physical torture to kind of be spiritually better. And you'll find that the Jews do fasting. In fact, we share a few days with them that we fast the same occasions they do. Pretty much every Christian denomination do fasting, right? But Ramadan is a rehab month. And the hard part is feeling, hoping that what you do in a worship is going to be accepted or not. I think that's kind of the thing that a lot of people don't think about. Like you do the good deed. You go to the mosque, you fast the month, you go to the, to the pilgrimage, you go to church, you go and help people. But the question is, did God accept that deed or not? So one of the things that are really important after Ramadan, as a sign that your Ramadan was accepted, that you need to change. If there was not a change after Ramadan, then your Ramadan wasn't really, a cha- wasn't really probably accepted because it hasn't changed you. A bad habit that you stopped doing could mm. be smoking, could be drinking alcohol, could be watching porno. I don't know, because all of that will ruin your fast, right? And if that doesn't really change, then that means you're fasting, all of that work is gone. And fasting is special because only God knows whether you're fasting or not. Because people can see you not eating for a few minutes, but you go back home and you can eat whatever you want to do, right? <laughs> you can cheat. So fasting is an extremely special. And I'm going to bring that up, but the verse that I mentioned, the order of that verse in the Quran is exactly after the very first ver- the verses that actually revealed to impose siyam or fasting. The very first verse after that was actually that means ask me, pray to me, and I will answer you, I will give you back. And which tells that fasting is a good time to pray. So if you want to ask for something in life, Steve, fast. And then make your prayers while you're fasting. That probably brings you closer to lock to God. At least that's what I believe in, and that's what the Quran says. I'm speaking today with Dr. Talat Al Shukarat, who is also a leader in the local Muslim congregation. Thank you so much for speaking with me in good thank, faith. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for inviting me over. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. That's our time for today, and thank you to our guest, Dr. Talat Al Shukarat, for generously sharing his stories and his faith. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Our Twitter is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.